0: and the USOPC in no way warrants that content of featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show.
1: The best way I can describe our sport is if you were to hold your arms out and put, you know, five pounds of weight on each hand and try to hold them there for half an hour.
2: Mesdames Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic
1: Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can win! You can win! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready.
3: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? cold. But it's getting cold here in the northeast. So winter's coming. Winter's coming. <laughs> so before we get into this week's show, we have a little bit of follow-up from last week about the Blood in the Water match, specifically movies made about it. So it was pointed out to us that Freedom's Fury was the documentary about the match and that was produced by Quentin Tarantino. And narrated by Mark Spitz, so that was definitely a Hollywood production, and we had been hoping that Hollywood would be doing something about this, so they they have in a way also there's but a, it's a documentary okay you want you want a fictional and uh, not a fictionalized version you want a movieized version of it yeah, I want like a movie movie okay well, then you'd have to look up children of Glory, which is a Hungarian movie directed by Christina Goda and produced by Andy Andy Vanya. And it was put out in late 2006. And that's, you know, when we were talking about the movie last week, that's the one I remember stumbling upon on YouTube. And I couldn't find it again when I needed to find it very quickly. So
2: that is but one still, I can still, hey, see. if they can make 17 versions of the girl with the dragon tattoo,
3: they right. can give and, me another
2: version right. of Blood and the Water Match.
3: Mm-hmm. Remake upon remake. We can we're, go. we're good for another one. It's been a while.
2: I mean, how many people really watch the Hungarian film?
3: I don't know, but now I really want to see it.
2: (laughs) I know, don't you?
3: (laughs) Oh man, today we have a great interview. We were so excited that Kim Rohde said yes to speaking with us. Kim, if uh, you may know, is a six-time Olympian, and she is the first athlete, male or female, to win medals at six consecutive Olympic Summer Games. And that covers any sport, and she started in Atlanta 1996, winning a gold medal, and she's continued through Rio 2016, and uh, has medaled every Games. The only other person who has equaled that is Italian loser Armin Ziegler, and he, that's he's a Winter Games, and she's still competing, so she could break that record easy.
2: And she's she, going to say, ciao Armin. That's right. <laughs>
3: She is also the first Olympic shooter, male or female, to compete in all three shotgun events, trap, double trap, and skeet. And, surprise, like many of our other interviews, this one went longer than we anticipated, so we're, we're chopping up her interview into covering a couple of different episodes So this week. We're talking about the shotgun discipline and what goes into this sport, so take a listen. The basics of shotgun sports is that basically you're shooting at targets that are launched into the air, but there are different disciplines. So what's the difference between trap and skeet? And then we can get into double trap, which wasn't is no longer on the Olympic program.
1: So the main difference between trap and skeet is the way the targets are thrown. So, for example, in an international skeet, You have a high house, a low house, and you have seven stations set in a half semicircle with the eighth station being in the middle. And the targets come out of either the high or the low house. You can get singles or doubles. But more basic than that is that in skeet, the targets actually cross in front of you. They're more of a a horizontal uh, direction. Whereas in trap, you have a single house set about 22 yards out. This is bunker that I'm talking about. It's another name for trap. So you basically have a trap. It's 15 machines inlaid underground. You stand 22 yards back from where the targets are being thrown. There are five stations. And you shoot one target at a time, and you get two shots at each target. And the birds go in a more vertical direction away from you. But the basic idea is
2: whoever hits the most wins.
1: Essentially, whoever hits the most wins. It could be just a nick off the target. It could be um, you might see like a little bit of powder or just a single break in down the middle, and we call that being the, the golden BB in our sport. <laughs> but at the end of the day, whoever breaks the most targets is who would be in, put into the final, and then from there they'd be wiped to zero and have another couple rounds. Uh, to be shot, and the person who has the highest score in that final round is the winner of the match. I don't know if I've made that simple enough, but... Oh, yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. No, (laughs) because I know
2: nothing. Jill knows a a good amount about this. I know absolutely nothing, so I figure if I can
1: understand it, then we'll be good. (laughs) Right. Well, there's something else to note, too, about the sport. So in the Olympics, we shoot the international form Of shotgun shooting. So when you say skeet and trap, usually that is defining American skeet or American otherwise known as ATA trap, American Trap Association. And those are completely different than what we're shooting in the international arena at the Olympics. So when we talk about the Olympics, we're talking about international skeet and bunker, which is uh, another form of trap Uh, but they tend to be the more harder versions of the American styles. Does that make sense? Yes.
3: (laughs) And then when you're shooting in the first round, how many rounds do you do? So, And essentially, how many shots are you firing?
1: So in international skeet, you're shooting 125 targets, and you will basically shoot the 125, um, something that I, I should mention is in international skeet, you have to start with the gun at your hip. And when you call pull, the bird can come out the second you call pull or up to three seconds anywhere at random. And you shoot singles and doubles depending upon which station you're on. In trap, you start with the gun mounted. There's no delay. When you call pull, the bird comes out the second you call pull, and you get two shots at every target. Now, the reason I mention this is when you go to, say, a final round, the rules kind of change a little bit. In skeet, they stay the same. You start with the gun at your hip. You call, pull. The bird can come out. The second you call, pull up to three seconds anywhere at random, and you get only doubles in the the shoot-off, and they're shot on three, four, and station five. Now, in trap or bunker, in the Olympics, you start with the gun mounted in the final round, you get one target and you only get one shot at each target to make it even more difficult. In those final rounds, you will shoot. It varies depending upon which sport you're doing as to how many targets you're going to get, but your score is essentially wiped to zero. And whoever walks out with the most hits, whether it be in skeet or trap, that is, who the winner is in those events okay sorry i hope i no no no
2: (laughs) i got it now i'm like wow in five minutes i feel like i've learned the whole sport i
1: (laughs) that was excellent
3: and how long is a match usually last or game i guess do you call it a match or a game
1: well it can be called both okay it can be called both a match or a a game you know we kind of have some lingo that goes with shooting. So a match or a game consists of, say, an American skeet, or just say, let me me put it this way, a match or game in international skeet will consist of approximately 125 targets, and it consists of a two-day competition. Usually, you'll shoot three rounds consisting of 75 targets the first day, and an additional 50 targets the second day, plus a final, and that's the whole match.
3: Wow. I get tired thinking about that because I think that seems yeah, to be a lot of it's, it's out of you.
1: Things. Yeah. There's a lot of little technical things that go into, into like the lingo of shooting. For example, a clay target can be called a clay or a bird, even though it's just a clay target. But we also have puff targets that when you hit them, they create like a puff of orange cloud for the cameras and for the final rounds is usually what we'll shoot. We also have things like the golden BB when you just barely break a bird with one pellet, all the way down to lingo like sandbaggers, people who, uh, you know, cheat to try to win. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the gun and the
3: ammo and what you wear. Tell us about the, the anatomy of a shotgun. Because it's the one that kind of breaks in half, and you can hang it on your neck. That's a yes. horrible way to describe it. <laughs> it but, but I mean, like, that's when, when people who don't know shooting see, see that. They see people with guns around their necks, and then it's like, wow, how does that work?
1: No, so um, a little bit of breakdown. So when you talk about shotguns, there's two forms of shotguns. You have a semi-automatic and you have an over-and-under or what's otherwise known as a break action. And the most commonly shot in the Olympics is a break action. It's an over-and-under, and and you literally push a lever to the right, and it'll kind of break the gun in half, um, at which point you can load and close and and retake the shot or, or, or shoot it. As far as gun anatomy, you have the chokes. And the chokes are found at the end of the barrel, It's essentially what we use to either constrict or make the pattern more open, depending on the distance that we're shooting the target. You'll find that people vary on their chokes, depending on what they feel is best for them and how fast they're shooting the target. But at the end of the day, we're all kind of in this zone of either shooting, you know, skeet chokes or uh, light mod full if you're shooting trap. It just really depends upon what game you're doing and how far you intend on breaking the bird but they are very important in our sport. Then you have the barrel which is in most cases in the Olympics an over and under barrel for shotgun. We are only allowed to shoot 12 gauge and from there moving back on the shotgun you have the receiver, the trigger, the stock. Um, The comb part of the stock is essentially where you put your face on the top of the stock, we call that the comb. The part that we place on our shoulder is called the butt pad. And you have the end, which is on out by the barrel, where we kind of hold our hand up. And then essentially you have your in bead and your middle bead. It's kind of hard to explain without a picture standing in front of you.
3: <laughs> well, that's interesting. How much does it weigh?
1: So a shotgun, um, to give you an example, mine weighs about nine, nine and a half pounds. And we lifted them anywhere from 125 times to uh, 500 times to a thousand times, depending on how much you're training or shooting every single day. Is the weight of the shotgun regulated for competition? The the weight of the shotgun is not regulated. It's tends to be, with most shooters, uh, like to have it balanced. And so you find that to be more with the higher-end guns as well as the more competitive the gun, the less the moving parts, the more dependable the gun becomes for competition. So you see just a few name brands. Um, I shoot personally a Beretta. It's a DT-11. It's an over and under uh, just standard 12-gauge shotgun. But it actually is designed for competition shooting.
2: Okay, so now the real question is, how much do these guns cost?
1: So shotguns that are shot in the Olympics can range anywhere from, I'm gonna say, $8,000 all the way up to $100,000, and the sky is the limit. <laughs> so wow. it really, I know we're just, re- yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a lot of money. And it really gives you an idea of the cost of shooting. Shooting is actually the second most expensive sport in the Olympics, only behind equestrian. A typical day for us, we could easily shoot between three and $700 a day in training. By the time you add the targets and the ammunition together, not including the gun and the travel and everything else that goes into it, shooting is one of the most expensive sports in the Olympics hands down.
3: So what goes into a $100,000 rifle? It's a shotgun. Oh,
1: I'm sorry, a shotgun. No, no, I just want to make sure that we keep it all clear and straight here. So the difference between, uh, you know, at a a certain point, um, the guns become more like art. So when they start getting up into the higher end, it becomes about, the beautiful wood the engraving the the gold the you know little subtle nuances that make it that higher end it's really what it what it comes down to as well as the quality of the gun if they start going into sets like a 12 20 410 or like a skeet and trap combo gun you know those types of things add to the value and make the gun more expensive
3: do you use different guns for different disciplines? Like, do you have a special skeet gun versus a trap gun?
1: So, yes, most people do use very different guns from skeet to trap. One of the most common things to be able to differentiate the, between the two is the length of the barrel. So in skeet, you'll shoot anywhere from, in the old days, it used to be 26 inches, but they've increased that to about 29 inches to 30 inches. In skeet, present day, as whereas in trap, you'll be looking at a barrel anywhere from 30 to uh, 32 or even longer, depending upon what the person wants or how they want it balanced. The other giveaway difference between a skeet gun and a trap gun is also the rib on the gun. So on the very top of the barrel where the bead's set, it's called the rib. It's usually what we sight down to hit a target. And in trap, you'll see those raised maybe an inch or two inches above the barrel, whereas in skeet, they'll be very flat and right down on the barrel. How long does a
2: gun in competition last?
1: It really depends upon the person and how well they take care of it. Uh, For me, I have not shot a lot of guns. I've kept the same gun and just shot it over and over and over again. I've shot millions of rounds through them. So it really depends upon the person and the maintenance that they're doing on them. But a gun can last you a lifetime.
3: I was going to say, when your gun was stolen before London, how did you deal with that?
1: Panic. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive, really but,
3: but then you lose your like your you lose your like right arm, basically. Correct.
1: Yeah, it would be essentially like an ice skater getting a new set of skates the day of the match. It takes us years to fine-tune them and get them into, you know, shooting order for ourselves. I mean, it's like anything when you do anything to the number that we're doing, the slightest little bit here or there, you're definitely going to feel it the next day. So having that gun be an extension of you to be able to hit that target is probably one of the most important aspects of our sport and making sure it fits you. And those two things take time and practice. And so, even still, even now, I'm still fine-tuning my gun and adjusting it. And you'll see shooters do that as they either gain or lose weight, or things change in their lives. You just whatever the reason, um, that's something that we constantly uh, are adjusting. I was
2: thinking the same thing. Like, how do you adjust to the story from London about the the stolen gun? I'm like, that must have been the worst moment when you. Oh, uh,
1: most definitely. You walk out, you walk out and you see that your gun is gone and the next day you have to compete. And the only thing that you can do is just try to pick up the pieces and just grasp for whatever it is you can. And so essentially I, I had this, you know, receiver and this stock over here and, you know, you're trying to get everything to fit and we're making the adjustments. I think I shot three rounds. And we're, I was adjusting it in between each station, trying to get it right. And then it was go time uh, to go and compete for uh, the selection matches and different events. And at the end of the day, you just kind of have to accept it and move forward and do the very best you can. And whatever the outcome may be, it's going to be. And that's essentially what I what I did.
3: Wow. So let's move on to the ammo. What is a shot made out of?
1: So there's different types of shot you have, uh, lead, you have, you know, copper where it's like got copper around it. I mean, there's different types, but essentially, uh, we're shooting a 24 gram, seven eighths of an ounce international load, which means that it has a lesser amount of shot. It's really solely only used for competition and solely used in international competition for the Olympic style game. It's very hard to come by and you just can't buy it off of any, any shelf. It's, the it's on the rarer side for ammunition.
3: So then in competition, do they provide the shot?
1: Our ammunition is either provided by our sponsors, like say for me, mine's Winchester. So they would ship the ammo to the competition and then I would then, you know, shoot the match and they referees and the people who are officiating the match actually test the ammunition to make sure that we are all competing on an equal playing field.
2: So everyone's using the same ammo within a single competition.
1: We're using the same amount of shot and the same amount of powder and things, but we can have different brands of ammo. But yes, we are essentially all shooting the same, you know, type of ammo. And it is very restricted. Um, If we have it where it comes up hot we can be disqualified.
3: So how do you tell the difference between your ammunition
1: manufacturers? So for ammunition manufacturers one of the things that we tell is we actually test them. So we test them in our guns and actually check the patterns and stuff and how they're functioning at certain distances and things, and essentially it's up to each individual shooter as to which ammo and what ammo they want to shoot.
3: Okay, and then uh, listener Meredith wondered whether Winchester makes you custom ammo or if it's special in any way.
1: The ammunition that we are required to shoot in our sport has to be something that is just general to the general public. However, they do very limited runs of it so it's not a, an ammunition that's very readily available
3: and then she also wondered about uh lead within the ammunition do you use lead free primer at all or are you nervous about lead exposure or how do how do they how is th- that topic addressed within the sport
1: i mean it's not something that we really worry about because it's uh, essentially inside the shell
3: okay.
1: um so at the end of the day, it's not really something we worry about. I mean, wash your hands, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's something that I think that just goes in general with anything that you do. You just have good hygiene and wash your hands. Don't put your ammo in your mouth. Yeah, don't yeah. don't put it in your mouth. And, <laughs> but I mean, even still, it's, it is covered in plastic. So, um, but you know, it's not really something that people people do. <laughs> you, don't, don't don't, you don't see us walking around with it in our mouth. <laughs>
3: So, and then kind of lastly, what about your uniform? You wear a vest and then over your clothes and also hats and glasses and ear protection. So what what is the vest for?
1: So the vest actually serves several purposes. One is that it helps us in international speed to be able to get the gun from our hip to our shoulder without snagging on any of our clothes. But then also once we get the gun to our shoulder, it allows the gun to kind of stick in place and be held into our shoulder. It also allows us to hold a large quantity of ammunition and have that ammunition dispersed very evenly across our shoulders and our back to not put us off balance or to hinder our ability to be able to swing and move with the target. There's also another form of, that you might see worn around, it's called a pouch and it's usually worn on a belt and it will hold their shells. It's a much simpler form You see it more in the American style of shooting, but it is something that people should be aware of.
2: So that's just preference, or is that dictated by the competition?
1: It's just totally preference. I think in international ski, you'll see more people wearing a vest because of the fact that they have to have a line that is regulated as to where we start the gun before we call pole. So a lot of people in international ski have vests, but... In, say, Trap or America Trap, you might see people wearing a pouch. It just, it depends on their preference or what they learn to, to having.
3: And then what, what does, what's the purpose of wearing a hat and uh, glasses? Ear protection is a no-brainer, but but it's interesting that glasses are an essential part.
1: Well, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with the hearing and eye protection is always worn as part of a safety uh, for shooting. However, in Europe, you'll see some people that don't wear glasses. Once again, it's just a personal preference. I personally wear glasses. Some of my competitors do not. So you might see people at the Olympics with or without. However, the, the nice thing about having glasses is that we have a very unique style of of glass or glasses that we wear. They sit normally very high on our face so that when we mount the gun, we're looking more through the center of the frame. Our center of the lenses. The frames on the glasses tend to be very small and unobtrusive, meaning that they don't prevent you from being able to see uh, the target. So they'll be small framed, usually sitting very high on someone's face, and they also have interchangeable lenses that will allow us to pop the lenses in and out depending upon the background that we are facing in the competition to better highlight that target and make it stand off the background so we can see it better. So those are some of the benefits of shooting glasses. And as far as the hat goes, when we go into shooting, we are essentially put out in the elements. The only time they'll stop a shooting match is if there's lightning. So we shoot in the rain, wind, snow, everything under the sun. And so thus where a hat is nice, if you're shooting say, in Arizona, and it's 116 degrees, to have a little of the glare taken away and having some shade, as well as if it's raining, to not have your glasses all marred up with raindrops so where you can't see the target. So, thus, you can see the importance of the hat, the glasses, and the earplugs. They kind of go as one. You'll also Correct. see in trap on the glasses on the side a thing called visors. And they're like little pieces of paper kind of on each side of the lens. Usually they're made out of cardboard or plastic. And they go on the frame of the glasses. And you'll see them on both sides of the the lenses. And essentially they prevent people from being able to see the people standing next to them walking or moving and or causing them to be distracted and miss a target. So it's like blinders. Exactly.
2: Huh.
3: Do you know what people do who are cross-eyed dominant in Shotgun? Cuz I'm I'm cross-eyed dominant. I shoot rifles, but um I know that I've just put scotch tape on my glasses to cover up the the left eye because um I'm right-handed and it's I just can't shoot left-handed. But what in Shotgun sports, what do people do when they're cross-eyed dominant?
1: So I am dominant left eye. And I shoot right-handed, so I'm cross-eyed, oh, dominant. Oh, oh, look at that, Oh, show.
3: yay. I found <laughs> my person. It's frustrating.
1: <laughs> I know, it is. I've heard that so many times. So there's a very large percentage of women that are dominant left eye. About 80 to 90% of all women are dominant left eye. So That's one of the first things we check when we are starting somebody off in shooting, is to check their dominancy. And essentially, what ends up happening is that we take a piece of 3M scotch tape and we place it in a very strategic spot on our lenses, and it prevents our left eye from being able to see the end bead and forces our right eye to look down the end of the gun and actually be successful at hitting the target. Ideally, if you are a new shooter and you've never shot before and you come across that you are left eye dominant, um, then you should be shooting left-handed. So essentially, before you even start, we would make that adjustment and have you start shooting that way. So whatever eye your dominant would be is be the the shoulder that the gun would be mounted upon.
2: So oh, do then left-handed women have an advantage if there?
1: No, there's no, no there's no advantage whether you're right-handed or left-handed. It essentially just comes down to being. Um, more successful at hitting targets. Uh, if you have your eye, the correct eye, looking down the end of the barrel at, at the target, then you're obviously going to be more successful and have a lot less problems. <laughs> okay, well, there goes my advantage. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you, if you are left-eye dominant and you say you want to shoot right-handed or you've learned, then you put a piece of tape in a very strategic place and there's a way of doing it. It's a little more complicated than I can describe over the phone. Uh, But at the end of the day, it it forces you to look down the end of the gun. You don't lose any of your peripheral and you'll still be just as successful. um, But ideally, you should be shooting left handed
3: That's interesting. So did you learn how to shoot right-handed first and that's why you didn't switch?
1: I did, actually. So usually young kids kind of go back and forth between which eye is dominant. And being at the age that I started, when they first tested me, I tested as right-eye dominant. And I started shooting and noticed my scores were, you know, dropped at a certain point. And they tested me again, and I was left-eye dominant. So I, instead of switching to being left-handed because I had so many rounds, under my belt already at right-handed they just taped my my glass on my lens on the left eye which the rest is history I guess I was gonna say I think it worked out okay
2: for you (laughs) I don't
1: think it hurt me yeah yeah
2: I think we did okay
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh wow well that makes me feel better (laughs) To be yeah. quite honest it's it's sometimes it's a pain having having this tape on your glasses, and i I do biathlon, so it's constantly putting the glasses up, putting the glasses down, hoping they don't fall off your head while you run that kind of thing so
1: yeah it 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 really makes a difference um having that piece of tape, and you can't just put it on it has to be very strategically put on. I will say that you do not want to close your left eye if you are right eye dominant, you want to keep both eyes open because having both eyes open gives you the depth perception as well as your peripheral to be able to see the target. And both of those are extremely important in shooting.
3: What attracted you to the shotgun sports in general? Because I will tell you, well, what what attracted you first to the to the sport?
1: Well, for me, it was my family. My entire family was from Montana and the outdoors. And it was just something that was passed down generationally in my family. And so essentially that's how I got started was my grandfather and my dad and my mom taking me out to the shooting range and somebody saying, hey, you know, you're pretty good. Why don't you try the club shoot? And then it was the state shoot and just kind of kept mushrooming from there. And before I knew it, I was going to my first Olympics.
2: Yeah, Talk about before you know it, you were a baby. (laughs)
1: I was still a baby. Yeah. My first Olympics I went to was in 1996. And I was 16 years old when I went to my first Olympics. I actually turned 17 five days before my event. Yeah.
2: Happy birthday. Here's a gold medal. I I know. It was (laughs) a
1: birthday present.
3: Well, I was going to say, we're not allowed to shoot trap or any of the shotgun sports in my house because i tried it once and i saw how addictive it was and i said no 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 we don't need another addictive sport in our house we're not allowed and <laughs> but but then when we entered when, when i said we got to interview you i told my husband we could do it and he's all excited now <laughs>
2: so,
1: <laughs> shooting is, is but, very fun it's very addictive in the sense that when you instantly see that target break it's like oh my god i want to do that again and again and again so it's it's a lot of fun there's a lot of camaraderie so there's a a lot of you know talking and heckling and you know girls against the guys kind of thing it's it's just a great sport to be in it's very family oriented and you get to enjoy it outdoors and it's something that's shot all over the world so it really is a fantastic sport to be involved in
3: well and one of the things i really liked about it was just the the mental gymnastics you're doing and trying to figure out, you know, the angle of the target versus the angle your gun has to be in and also dealing with the elements because you don't know how wind might affect where your bullet's going to go. And that, that I think, is also very interesting about the sport that maybe an average person wouldn't consider.
1: Yes, I agree wholeheartedly that essentially it's all the subtle things that you don't see that really play into our sport. So the wind, the lighting, the background, the target, the the gun, the gun fit, those things all play a major part into being successful and having them all add up at that singular moment to be able to hit that target. And at the end of the day, it's about doing that a hundred times or 125 times and have nothing be different. Which is always a challenge when you're out in the elements.
2: So is the idea of training for you just making it all muscle memory, so you're not really thinking at all during competition?
1: Well, we definitely think during competition. It's more about having it be muscle memory on the more basic things, like whole point, stance, gun mount, you know not thinking about the leads and things like that. And it, when you make it like walking and you're not thinking about those things, it allows you to focus on the other things, like calming yourself down because the crowd behind you is ooing and awing when you hit a target, or being able to focus on the lighting or the wind and how is it going to affect the target. So those are other aspects that play into the game, but yes, most definitely, the more you shoot, um, the more repetition you have, the better you're going to be in the in the sport.
3: So what's your average training day like?
1: I average anywhere between 500 and 1,000 rounds seven days a week. Thank Every you, Winchester.
3: Right? I- <laughs> <laughs> That's all I would say. Thank you, Winchester.
1: Yeah, it most definitely. I mean, especially when you look at here in California, a box of ammunition costs a single box of 25 uh, shots is anywhere from 10 to $11 a box. And then when you add in another $10 for the round, just say 10 and 10, you're looking at about $20 $20 for every 25 shots you take. That doesn't include your gun. That doesn't include your vest. It doesn't include your travel. It just really gives you a a very um, good understanding of just truly how expensive our sport can be. I'm not good in math, but I I get those zeros. (laughs) That was a lot of zeros. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot. And I think they've estimated me at somewhere between three and four million rounds in my lifetime. Wow. So thank you, Winchester and mom and dad for (laughs) supporting me.
2: (laughs) So how has it changed over the years? I mean, was this true 10 years ago in terms of what you're doing to train?
1: The training really has stayed the same for me. I think one of my biggest challenges is now mom and dad aren't paying for it. <laughs> um, but, you know, even more so is the fact that I think just priorities in life change. Um, we lose a lot of people to college and to families and things like that, and you see them come back after they've already got their career started and try to make a comeback in our sport But essentially, when I started the game, it was a much older crowd of people. And now we're seeing a much younger crowd of shooters. And I'm actually one of the older people on the team now, whereas when I first started in 1996, I was the youngest. I think that has to do with with me a little. But at the same time, we're seeing the age of the shooters coming down, and we're seeing a longer, I would say, a longer longevity within the sport, within shooters, or amongst the shooters.
3: Do you do any cross training as well as your regular training?
1: Well, I'm kind of injured right now, so I'm not in the best to be answering it, but yes. I mean, overall, most of the shooters do a lot of cross-type training to um, have the endurance. Um, The best way I can describe our sport is if you were to hold your arms out and put you know, five pounds of weight on each hand and try to hold them there for a half an hour. Um, Essentially, it's all those little muscles that you aren't aware of that help stabilize and swing and and move and just steady. Those are the muscles that are going to be used in shooting. So would
2: typical injuries be things like tendinitis or um, repetitive stress injuries?
1: We have, I'd say typical injuries tend to be with the shoulder, back, and hips. Um, depending on the sport that you're doing Um, in rifle. There's a lot with your back and arms and shoulders and shotgun. It's all the above because we have a lot of movement. We also take a lot of recoil as well as, you know, we have a lot of just like say some of the more basic type things would be uh, rotator cuffs, tendonitis and various forms, um, issues with the back and uh, neck and uh also with like hips and you know just standing for long periods of time because we are literally on our feet all day long
3: thank you so much kim you can follow kim on twitter at kim rody and also on insta she's kim rody on facebook she is kimberly rody and her website is kimrody.wordpress.com and as always we will have links to those in the show notes Oh my gosh, I learned so much about shotgun sports. It was amazing.
2: I know, and I knew nothing. So now I can say everything I know, I know from Kim Rody.
3: (laughs) Which ain't so bad, right?
2: I know, I'm going to say, seriously. (laughs) Just just a multi-Olympic medalist taught me everything I know about shotgun sports.
3: I know, and I won't lie, like I did trap once and I came home and I said, Ben, we are not doing this because this is an addiction and it will be a bad one.
2: So so you like shooting things, in other words.
3: I do, but it was more of the mental trying to figure out the angles at which the target was going to come out versus where you had to put your gun and trying to get all that right. It was, it's really, it, it's a challenging physically in a way that I don't think we necessarily think of because you go, oh, well, they're standing there, but they do have to move around. They do have to have a lot of quick movements and fast reactions, but it's like the mental math that you have to do and train yourself is and really
2: keeping important. the focus yeah. throughout oh a match and and over so many years she's just amazing and yeah. she's lovely
3: yeah she was so, lovely so, yeah i'm glad i'm glad she was kind enough to extend our call <laughs> that made me so happy I like, know, oh. because we had gotten <laughs> with so many questions about the sport
2: and then we were like oh, yeah, and you've been to six Olympics, and we haven't even touched on that yet. So. <laughs> right,
3: right. And when she said, well, I got time, I've got like all day, I almost went, oh, you don't know how long you're in for, <laughs> where are your new besties? <laughs> I know, I was like, Kim, be careful what you offer." for, we'll take you up on it. Yeah, but that was really exciting. I am so glad that she explained everything so well. And it was like, I, I you know, I didn't even re- realize, but it makes perfect sense that, shooting is such an expensive sport
2: right i had you would never thought of it right no i never even crossed my mind no, that it'd be so right. expensive but of course and,
3: yes it makes perfect sense when you're like oh yeah and and i know better i know that oh you have to buy you have to buy games all the time and ammo all the time but i did not know that a hundred thousand dollar shotgun existed
2: yeah that didn't surprise me though because isn't there like a million dollar car that has like gold inlaid oh, yeah, steering but... wheels? So I think it was more that kind of thing. But just even that the low end of the com- the competitive shotgun was eight thousand dollars. Right?
3: Oh my gosh.
2: Like that's wow. the low end?
3: Wow, right? So but but that, oh man, those are nice rifles. Or not <laughs> they're not rifles.
2: They're not rifles, Jill. <sighs> those have to be some pretty sweet shotguns
3: and I can tell you they're probably not the loners at the gun club
2: <laughs> yeah. don't think so it's sort of like you know when you get the rental car
3: yeah yeah right. and it's
2: always like the really weird color <laughs> pretty much it sort of, yeah smells a little odd
3: but I did tell Ben that we were allowed to shoot trap because Kim Rody was on the show so we'll get there Kim will be very, proud. He, he will be very excited on to Tokyo 2020 news. The Tokyo 2020 organizing committee has named Naomi Kawase as the director of the official film for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. That's very exciting. She is the youngest winner of the Camera Door, at, which is the best new director at the Cannes Film Festival. And she's also won the Grand Prix award there. And she's the first Japanese director to be a member of the Cannes Jury. And many of her other films have been at uh, film festivals all over the world. So this will be exciting. What else do we have on Tokyo 2020? I got two things.
2: Mm -hmm. And they're sort of related because in unbelievably shocking news, Tokyo 2020 organizing committee has blown its budget. But the problem is, it all depends on where you assign the money. Oh. So the issue is the IOC, the organizing committee, the Japanese government, and private funders are all arguing oh, because over who pays for what.
3: Right, because none of them want to be the ones footing most of the bill, and right. all of them want to be the ones to say, we were on budget.
2: And nobody's on budget. Wow.
0: Yeah.
3: So it was supposed to
2: be one of the cheapest Olympics. It's now turning into the second most expensive behind Beijing.
0: Oh,
3: my gosh. That's incredible. Yeah.
2: God, I don't know. But in happier news mm-hmm. and not happier news, they are on schedule for construction. Oh, well, that's good. So the roof, uh, apparently it's this gorgeous timber roof for the central gymnastic venue was assembled and they raised the roof (laughs) this week. (laughs) You know, I'm sorry. And that's right on schedule. So they should be good. The bad news is the wood that they used has been tied to a Coronito group who supposedly got it by illegally harvesting wood from the Indonesian rainforest. Awesome. And abusing its workers. More Awesome. Yeah.
1: Oh,
3: jeez. Again, so, what is wrong with people? Why can't they do uh, it right?
2: I know. So, yet again, we've got some money woes and human rights abuses, and.
3: And we're still like a year and a half out. Yeah.
2: So. But they're on uh, schedule.
3: Yay. 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 Okay. Well, that's all interesting news. It'll be interesting to see how they. Finally agree to the books because remember how Pyeongchang spent so much money, but the organizing committee they ended with a surplus.
2: Right, so and have it's to do that... with your accounting mm-hmm. magic. Wow,
3: be interesting to see what they come up with. I don't know, but it's going to be a rough one. I think Tokyo adding so many new sports and so many sports that required different venues on top of all of the other plans that they had, like building a new stadium. Right. And other new venues. I think that's just not.
2: I don't. In a think country a, where things are expensive, you know, right. real estate in Japan is mm-hmm. one of the most expensive in the world.
3: Right. So I don't think overall that was the super smartest way to go. But yeah, they'll still have the Olympics, and it'll be interesting to see how um, how it turns out afterwards. Lots of people go.
2: Lots of people. We'll buy always have skateboarding. Though.
3: We might not always have
2: skateboarding <laughs> Oh, God, I hope we don't always have skateboarding.
3: <laughs> anyway, moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu! This is so exciting.
2: I know, Don Harper Nelson is having a baby.
3: Yay! So excited I think excited she was pregnant when she talked oh, to us. Oh, I bet she was. And it was I just like, I, I want to be a mom. Hope it happens. Yeah, that very coy, hope it happens. Hmm.
2: So here's the one thing I'm going to say. She did not, and the announcement that she put was adorable because yes. whole video, video of them. Yeah,
3: we'll put the video in the the show notes.
2: Because it, it's adorable. But somehow in my head, I got it that it was a boy, but she doesn't say that. So when I her a little congratulations out, mm-hmm. I put blue booties. Okay. So I guess my instincts are saying they're having a boy. So.
3: Okay. Well, note that that's on the record now. That's on so the record now that leave. I'm.
2: Okay. I don't care. I'm just so excited for her because I know I she's, too. they are, they, I should say, are so, so pleased. And Keegan Randall had some surgery this week in her continuing treatment for breast cancer. And that went very well. And Good. she's doing great. So Good. we're continuing. Good mojo to Keegan. Yes. I hope she's getting better. And last, Erin Jackson, unfortunately, has to miss the rest of the roller derby season.
3: Yeah, she was gone this this past weekend was champs and like when I saw that Jacksonville got beat pretty badly, I'm like, huh? Did Erin not go? And she didn't go
2: because she's was named to the World Cup team
3: for, for US, the U.S. for speed skating. speed skating.
2: Yep, so she's in Japan this weekend for her first event, and uh, we. Couldn't be happier for her that know, she's I'm
3: super excited. And her her qualifying time to get into the World Cup circuit was better than her Olympic time. So
2: she just keeps getting better. I know. I'm I so mean, excited. She's... Oh, It's so much fun to watch her because we're basically watching her from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you yeah. usually don't get to see an athlete early in their progress. You know, by the time they get on our radar. Right. They've been on years for years and years. Line. Yeah. And it's the same with Josh Williamson. We are sort of see, we got to see him from the beginning of bobsled. So he's been in Whistler training like crazy. So this is, this has been a fun couple of weeks for our, for our our people. people. I'm so excited.
3: So we have some other Olympic news, Uh, some follow-up from Pyeongchang. Sadly, uh, a sad story from our favorite curling team the garlic girls who are citing some verbal abuse and uh, just some bad treatment by their coaching staff so uh they're having what are they An investigation An investigation thank you
2: yeah for the south korean women's curling team so both for their coaching staff and for south korea curling federation oh wow yeah oh this that's is, big yeah so this is
3: not okay no no And I hope that the investigation gets to the root of the matter and makes some change, some positive change. And hopefully
2: they'll, uh, you know, take a little less time than USA Gymnastics did. Yeah, hope so. Hmm.
3: But, and and also because you got to hope that the sport of curling in Korea is really taking off. So, you know, this would be... So tough to kind of deal with that and maybe hopefully doesn't shy people away from the sport and participating in a fun and healthy way. But not great news. Other not so great news for the Olympic movement, Calgary 2026, uh, they had a plebiscite vote for it in its city. Almost 305,000 voters showed up, which was about 58% of the voter turnout, and they voted no. No. We do not want the games in Calgary in 2026. So we are down to Stockholm and your joint bid from Italy and
2: Cortina.
3: It's hard. I mean, so there'll be uh, the, the big committee in yeah. Calgary will be winding down, but that's tough. That's a, It's another huge signal to the IOC that things have to change.
2: Yeah, and the news out of Japan on Tokyo is not Helping no, the
3: 2026 no. cause. Yeah. No, and it well, it's not helping future bid. The only thing I think that the IOC is lucky that they have is the fact that they've got the next two summer games underway. And that, right. you know, and LA, we know LA knows how to make money and they do have 10 years to kind of get sponsors together and start working on how to fund it. Right. Good, but you I, know.
2: Yeah, and you would hope with the 10 years it could also... They've got the time to really think it through, mm-hmm. so you won't run into people trying to save money and harvesting the trees from the Indonesian rainforest. Right. You hope. Oh, yeah. Hope. Uh, don't uh, do that. No, no. Okay. Side note. Yes. Doesn't plebiscite sound like something you don't want to have? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like yeah. an unfortunate. It does sound skin like skin disorder. Right.
3: Well it's an unfortunate vote that they have to have. I know. Right? Oh, but man, they have spoken. So we'll see. We'll see what it gets down to because Stockholm was really, really excited about the Calgary bid themselves. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. But if it gets down to just one city again, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, ha- have problems, we're yeah. gonna have problems.
2: We're gonna have problems. Okay. Yes. You know, you haven't done this in a while. What? But now I'm upset again. Uh oh. You know, Don Harper Nelson's pregnant. I'm trying to cheer myself up.
3: Oh, I'm sorry, Nelson. <laughs> <Don't> because <know.
2: laughs> you gave oh, me man. all this bad news, and now I I'm know like, we should have had all.
3: We should have reorganized our show to have all the bad news together.
2: Yeah, and then and then
3: end with... on a good, good note with Don Harper Nelson's having a baby. I'm so excited! I can I'm so excited for her too. It's so nice that you know oh. people can are able to realize the. Dreams and goals that they had. So I hope she has a good pregnancy. That'll be fun. It'll
2: be fun to see little one jumping around. Just gonna have a cutest little baby bump. Oh, gosh, right? Oh yeah. That that kid's gonna be talk about kicking. Oh,
3: I imagine. I imagine. Get ready, Don. Right, running around. You're gonna have to. Well, well. Here's the thing, though, because the kid. You know how you have to chase your little kids around. She'll be right okay. there. He, they're she, never running away. Not getting away.
2: <laughs> Like, i really? want to go i've got a gold medal what do you got
3: kid yeah, right i know how to sprint i, I can hurl. Okay. you know what the that those uh 400s and 600s she'd do for endurance are really gonna come in handy right now <laughs> she's got a good base layer
2: <laughs> kid you are getting away with nothing huh. just accept it already
3: so on that happy note we'll okay
2: wrap. i feel That's better thing. Thing, so. okay good good good
3: good We will catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Now, next week is Thanksgiving in the United States, which is a big holiday here. So we are going to have a special episode, which will feature our lightning round interview segments. uh, And those are not previously aired interviews with some of our Team Olympic Fever members. We are excited to bring you a whole batch of those because we ask our interview subjects the same questions and the answers that they have are really surprising sometimes so after that week we'll have kim back to talk about her olympic experiences because she's got six of them and she's got some good stories as well so stuff we had not heard before i know i was so excited to hear the little details she remembered and uh, you know teaser on that you don't play laser tag against olympic shooters that's, <laughs> that's
2: not, not a good a, option
3: not, but she had fun right so anyway until then thank you so much for listening and until next time keep the flame alive stay in
0: touch email us at olymfever at com. that's o l y m fever at gmail you can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837 that's 530-70-fever we're on Twitter at Olimfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.
3: We might not always have skateboarding <laughs> Oh God, I hope we don't
1: always have skateboarding. <laughs>